This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Joanna, Tim, Stephen, and Emerson. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F. He asks, Did you really believe that only people from your own church were the only true Christians? Well, this question is inspired by a story I told a couple of weeks ago about my own childhood. I described myself as a little Pharisee because I didn't believe other people's faith was genuine if they didn't go to my church. And yes, Caleb, that is a true story. The impression I'd gotten in church was that we were the only people who believed everything the Bible taught. Other churches might say they followed the whole Bible, but clearly they didn't because they disagreed with us. Of course, I look back on this with embarrassment. That's one of the reasons you'll often hear me remind you that God is at work in the larger world, in all kinds of churches, not just ours, so that you don't grow up making the same mistakes as me. One thing I really appreciate about my church growing up, though, is that they instilled in me the importance of believing whatever the Bible teaches. That's something I want you to do, too. In fact, the whole reason I became a Presbyterian in the first place was that I was taught to accept everything the Bible teaches, and the more I read it, the more it fit with Presbyterianism. But that doesn't mean we're the only true Christians, or even that we've got everything figured out. Fortunately, Jesus is patient with us all. And now Joanna asks, how do you save up treasure in heaven? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us not to store up treasure on earth, but to store it up in heaven. Whatever you stockpile on earth will ultimately be lost. It will be taken from you. Even if you manage to keep your treasure until the very day you die, you will die and you can't take it with you. But the treasure that you store in heaven cannot be lost, Jesus says. What he means is, instead of living our lives focused on worldly happiness, we need to focus on spiritual happiness instead. That means sacrificing now so that we can have eternal life in Christ. So, the way you save up treasure in heaven is by loving your neighbor as yourself, by serving others for the glory of God. Instead of doing things that the world praises, you do things that God praises. Jesus says, when we work for man's reward, what we get in this life is all we get. But, When we work for God's glory by doing the things He calls us to do, we receive our reward from Him in the life to come. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes once again from Tim, so let's give him a round of applause. 
And here's Tim's question. Why did God send Abraham to kill his son, even though he knew Abraham would listen? Well, Tim, God made a covenant promise to Abraham. He told him that his descendants would be great, and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. But at the time that God made this promise, do you know how many descendants Abraham actually had? Zero. Before he could bless future generations, Abraham needed there to be a next generation. In other words, he needed a son. But Abraham and his wife Sarah were so old at this point that it didn't seem like that was a possibility. So they came up with a plan for Abraham to have a son with a servant woman, Hagar. And that's how Ishmael was born. Ishmael, however, was not the son that God had promised. For the promised offspring, they would have to wait. Then God gave them a true son, Isaac. You can imagine their joy. Now they knew that God's promise would be kept because he had given them this impossible son. I'm sure you already know this background, but it's important to keep all of this in mind when you read Genesis 22, where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Many people have speculated about what Abraham must have thought when he heard this. Genesis 22 doesn't tell us. In verse 2, God tells him to make the sacrifice, and in verse 3, Abraham gets up early to go and do it. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard wrote a whole series of imaginary scenes where he tried to work out what must have been going on through Abraham's mind. He's not alone. A lot of people have wondered about this. In fact, when I was your age, I had a Sunday school teacher who said that Abraham was quick to obey God's command because he knew that God wouldn't let him go through with it. He knew that God was good and that he wouldn't command a human sacrifice. But that's not actually what Genesis 22 says. It gives every impression that Abraham, whatever he's feeling, intends to carry out the order. The cool thing is, we don't have to guess what Abraham was thinking, because the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, listen to this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Abraham obeyed because he believed God's promise. God had promised that it was through Isaac that his offspring would come, and so if he sacrificed Isaac, then God would have to raise him up from the dead. And Abraham believed he would, because the alternative was that God would break his promise, which God would never do. It wasn't that Abraham was cold-hearted or didn't love his son. It's that he trusted so completely in God's covenant that he believed that even this would not stop it. As Paul puts it in Romans 4, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The author of Hebrews calls this a test, and that answers your question about why God would demand this sacrifice. He wanted Abraham's faith to be in him alone, not in anything else, even his son. 
There's something else that God was doing, though, teaching us how he was going to save his people. The interesting thing is, Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the covenant promise to Abraham's offspring was not to offspring in general, but to Christ in particular. And that helps us understand the exact nature of this test. Why did God test Abraham specifically this way, by commanding the sacrifice of his beloved son? Well, he did it because that's what God himself would have to do in order to save us. Offer up his beloved son as a sacrifice to atone for sin. When the angel stops Abraham and points out the substitute that God has prepared, we remember Abraham's words to Isaac earlier, God will provide for himself the lamb. And God does provide the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world and whom God raised from the dead. The first hint of the gospel is, of course, in Genesis 3.15, when God tells the serpent that the offspring of the woman, there's that word offspring again, will bruise his head. That offspring is Jesus, as Paul affirms in Romans 16.20 when he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's a little hint right at the beginning of Genesis about Christ's victory. And here, in Genesis 22, we get a very, very strong hint, which also reveals aspects of the kind of death that Jesus would die. It's really amazing to see these layers when you read Genesis 22 in light of the Gospels. And that's why... God tests Abraham in precisely this way, knowing the outcome in advance. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, we have Stephen's question, how old are you? Stephen, some people think it's rude to ask old people their age, but not me. I assume that you're asking because I seem too young to have so much wisdom. As much as I know, you'd think that I must be a thousand years old, or at least 500. But actually, I was born in the year 1970, which means that when I celebrate my birthday at the end of summer 2022, I will turn 52 years old. If you want to know my secret for staying so youthful, I attribute my success to one thing, which is reading too much. And now Emerson asks, why do we have Bibles in every seat? Whenever you're in the sanctuary at Grace Emerson and you want to check something in the Bible, just reach under a nearby chair and you should find a copy there. But we don't actually have Bibles in every seat. Some of our chairs have trays underneath to hold Bibles and others don't. Only the ones with trays have Bibles under them. Now, the reason for having Bibles there is that not everyone brings a Bible to church with them. By making these available, we make sure that each person can check for themselves whatever text I happen to be preaching. Now, I like to encourage people to bring their own Bibles with them to church. But whenever that's not convenient, you can always grab a copy under the seat in front of you and follow along with that. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. 
Until next time, keep asking the big questions.